0: Well, good morning, church. So as you know, uh, almost every week when I prepare a message and I preach a message, it always preaches and speaks to me first, which can encourage me and uplift me. It can also challenge me and convict me. But God's word preaches to all of us, right? It's not just me here preaching to you. It's his word preaching to all of us through the messages and so I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one here in the room, but I had a rough week. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just have a rough week. And, and I had a rough week, and so the other day, I, uh, every, you know, I don't know if you've got a place, sort of a, a special place you go to. You know, Maybe it's outside, maybe it's inside. We just sort of feel close to God. We know He's everywhere with us, but some places just help us to focus on His presence. And when I was probably nine or 10 years old, my father had a motorcycle and he'd take, you know, ride and I'd ride on the back. When I was probably nine, nine years old or 10 years old, he took me to Ned's Point in Matapoiset to the lighthouse there. And so that's like my place, you know, I've been going there for years and years. And, and uh, so the other day I, you know, I did some stuff here in the office and I had, you know, some phone calls to make. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be fo- on the phone for an hour and a half, maybe longer. I'm going to go to Ned's Point. I'm going to look at the ocean, pray, make my phone calls. And so I was there and, you know, just kind of s- settled in and, and looked at the ocean, and just sort of prayed to the Lord and, you know, made a couple of phone calls. And I was just sitting there kind of, you know, a little melancholy, you know, kind of a little, little just beat up, you know. And, uh, and this car pulls in and my immediate thought was, there's this whole big parking lot. Why Why is this person pulling so close to me? And I looked over and it was my daughter, Amelia. And she had no idea that I was going to be there at all. God knew that I was going to be there. And her class had gotten canceled, and she works in Marion, and so she thought she'd pull in Ned's Point and eat her lunch. And so she got in my car and, and ate lunch, and, and uh, we talked, and then we prayed together. And then the minute she got out of my car and left, I cried like a baby. She said, thank you, Lord, for sending me an angel, right? And so the title of the message this morning, amen. The title of this message this morning is don't just go through it, grow through it. Don't just go through it, grow through it. Suffering, difficulty, struggle, it's going to come. And I've preached before, and this theme's come up a lot. If we're comfortable, we're not growing. And if we're growing, we're not comfortable. And so we don't have to go out of our way to seek discomfort. Discomfort but we need to embrace it as an opportunity to grow. We need to look at all of the Christian life is more him, less me, right? All of the Christian life is us becoming more like Jesus through every circumstance and every situation. Here's the thing, right? The less like Jesus we are, the more painful that's gonna be. The more edges that need to be rounded off, the more refining that needs to take place. Martin Luther had a three-part definition of what makes a great theologian. So there's three things that make a great theologian, prayer, meditation, and affliction. Prayer, meditation, and affliction. I would, in fact, say that this definition includes the ingredients for a mature Christian. In fact, in our community groups, we've been looking at the book of James, and he says that exact same thing. In James 1, verse 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible doesn't have a period there. I've heard people just say that. Consider it pure joy, period. Thank you, brother. All right, great, I appreciate that. James wasn't a sadist. James doesn't just say, consider it pure joy when you face trials because... The thought continues because there's a reason, in other words, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That somehow through our trials, through our difficulties, we are met with the nearness of God with his comfort, with his peace, with his guidance, with his wisdom. We don't seek suffering, but it's a part of the human experience. No matter where you live on the planet, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your position or vocation in life, we will suffer. Everyone here, you either are suffering or you will be suffering at some point. There are people in this room right now who are in the middle of great suffering. Some of them may show it, others may not. And so I would encourage you that if you're here and you're not in a particularly dark time, your you're, things are going good around you, then praise God. You know what you should do with that? Look around and find somebody who could use you, who could use your encouragement, minister, and serve. And don't just say, hey, how you doing? And when somebody says, I'm okay, and you can see in their eyes they're not, don't just be like, well, you know, I gotta get to, get to lunch, but pray with them. You know what I found? I used to, you know, think, I used to look for opportunities to pray with people, and in my mind, I'd be like, that person's probably not going to want me to pray with them. And then I stopped just looking. I stopped trying to decide that on my own, and I I started asking everybody that I'm around, hey, do you want me to pray with you? And you know what? Nine out of 10 people say yes. Nine out of 10 people say, I would love that. You know why? Because people need hope. They need to feel loved. And no matter what they believe, and no matter what they know or don't know, there's something powerful. The Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, not because of us, but because of Him. See, suffering will help us to be aware of the Lord's closeness, to increase our faith, to develop our character, and help us to be grateful for what we have. Be a friend. Take the opportunity to walk with somebody in love like Jesus did. Look around you, church. We need each other. And so last week in our discussion, we read Romans 8.28 about walking with God, about trusting with him, uh, trusting with and through it, trusting him, sorry, with and through all things. And we know that when walking with God, we must persevere. We must keep the faith. We must trust that he's walking with us even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we can't see him. And so certainly in the midst of pain and suffering, we can feel unloved by God or forgotten. And when tragedy strikes and we're faced with grief, with loss, with mourning, we don't want an intellectual response to that. We want the God who draws near. We want comfort from above. And see, the Christian God is unique in that we worship a God who's not immune and removed from struggles, but one who entered into the human experience. I want to read some scriptures that describe Jesus' life, and we don't think of this often enough. Isaiah 53.3, it says he was despised and rejected. Who wants to live a life despised and rejected? Being sinless and perfect and coming to die for the very people that despise and reject you. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus himself says this, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if, it, if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. You know, not so much maybe now, but earlier on in our journeys, the same people who, didn't make fun of Jamie and I when we should have been, like, put in jail or committed for some of the things we were doing. That was okay. Now we're fools. Now you hear about Brian and Jamie? Those guys are crazy. I had somebody say to me once, when you go up there every, you know, every time, don't you get nervous? Don't you feel like maybe you're going to do something and look stupid? I'm like, my first whole 35 years of my life, everything I did made me look stupid. I'll be a fool for Jesus. Amen? Jesus said, if the world hates you, it's because you don't belong to him. And they hated me first. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. See, there's a doubt we go through. There's a wrestling with God when bad stuff happens. It's a deeply emotional, deeply personal wrestling. And I've had many conversations with people in the midst of tragedies, like unimaginable loss of spouses and children. And they don't want an intellectual response to suffering. They don't want what's called a theodicy. The word means, it's a big word, it just means a vindication of God. In other words, an explanation intellectually or philosophically how suffering could exist and a good God could exist. And I can present that. In fact, Paul's going to present that. Jesus is going to redirect that question. But we're going to, there's, there's an intellectual response to that. There's an intellectual answer to that. But what people want in the midst of that kind of suffering, what, what people in this room need is the love of Christ. Is we, We're all happy to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Somebody gets good news, but to mourn with those who mourn. We said last week, Jesus wept. Two two small words that say a whole lot about the God we worship. See, one of the things we must always remember is that God will use every circumstance and every situation to make us more aware of our need for him and of his presence in our lives. God is there and he cares. John 15 and verse 27, it says, For the Father himself loves you, Because you have loved me and have believed I came from God. I came from a father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. Jesus is talking to his closest friends, to his disciples, to people who've walked with him and loved him and would say, Jesus, we'll We'll do anything for you. We'll follow you. We'll never leave you. We believe in you. We love you. We trust you. And so his disciples said, Now you're speaking plainly, you're not using figurative speech. Now that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, this is why we believe you came from God. Jesus, what you're saying makes sense. We can see it and touch it and feel it. It makes sense to our mind. It's it's plain speech. And Jesus responds this way Do you now believe? Do you believe just because of that? Because the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then he says this, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will face trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, you believe me now because you can see me and touch me and you understand what I'm saying. But when you're scattered, when you can't see me, when things don't make sense, when all you have is the reassurance of my promise and my word that I will never leave you or forsake you, will you then find that peace in me? Jesus is saying that belief will get tested when life gets tough. But we can still have peace because he still stands, stands among us. And when we need it the most, says, peace be with you. The word in, in uh, James 1, 2, and 4, it says, Count all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that testing of your faith, one of the versions says, produces steadfastness that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Steadfastness means perseverance. It means Firmly fixed in place, immovable, constant, faithful. The best advice I give people all the time is just stand. Just stand. When the world around you is falling apart, when when, when I was in team challenge and I was ministering to the guys there, and they wanted to leave the program, every day someone come to my office, Pastor Brian, I want to leave. I'd say, fine, leave tomorrow. Pray about it for a day. Because we all react and we respond. And you know what? 99 out of 100 times, you're going to regret that. But if you're prayerful, if you allow God to minister to you, to guide your steps, just stand. Sometimes it's all we can do is not leave, is not walk away, is be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10, cease striving. Recognize the limit of what you can do and allow him to do what only he can. You see, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane very powerful prayer, and it has two elements of all prayer that we should pray, and we're really good at the first part, when Jesus says, Father, take this cup from me, Lord, if there was any different way for this to happen, Lord, change the circumstance, change the situation, so if you want to pray for that, you can pray for that, it's okay to pray for that, Jesus prayed for that, but then the second part of that prayer is what we're not so good at but if not, y'all will not mind be done. I trust in you. I trust in you even when I can't see. Lord, have your way. So last week we read Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. But that's not written in isolation. That doesn't mean what I think sometimes we think it means. So we're going to read it in context. But no matter, no matter what you're going through, God loves you. And no matter what it feels like, you're not alone. You have a community around you. And so, Father, would you now do what only you can do through the power of your word and spirit? Would you minister to hearts and minds and spirits in this place? Would you have your way? God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And spirits to receive, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at Paul's statement that we just read in context, right? In the community groups, we learned about how to read the Bible, and context is everything. You got to know who's the author, who's the audience. What's the occasion of the writing? What's happening around the writing? To get proper context, to get fuller understanding, you got to read the verses before and after. Remember, the verses and chapters were put in later. Most of the, the writings were letters. They were one thought. And so we can't just take things in isolation without it losing Meaning. You know, some of you maybe in in the past, I hope, I certainly hope not still, but you've been in Bible studies where you went around and everybody goes, well, what do you think this means? Well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? And everybody has a different idea of what a scripture means, and that's not, that's not what, it has to mean what it originally meant first before we can apply it to what it means here and now. So you have to understand the intended meaning. And so the first Christians in Rome, Rome was an important city around the time of Paul, They had a vast army controlled basically all of the countries around the Mediterranean Sea. It was important for trade. A lot of rich, powerful rulers who had a lot of slaves and a lot of workers there. So there was a lot of powerful and wealthy, and there was also a lot of people who were subjected to the tyranny of that system. People who were exploited. See, most of Paul's letters were written to churches he planted, but the church in Rome Rome was different. It had been there before Paul. But Paul understands their suffering. He understands their circumstance. And he's writing this letter to encourage them in the midst of that suffering because Paul knew suffering and Jesus knew suffering. And throughout the Bible, the many heroes of the faith knew great suffering. Job, Job, I I've, I've preached a sermon before, and I was going to put Job in here, but I, I'm not going to have the time. But another time, I'll preach just on Job. Job knew great suffering, and it increased his faith. So Paul writes here to encourage those who suffer under persecution, whether that's because of somebody in power or that's just because of life trials. So Romans 8, and I want to begin in verse 18. Verse 18. And the heading in my Bible says this, present suffering and future glory. And that sort of bookends the whole thing, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about present suffering, but we're going to talk about present suffering in light of future glory. Just like Paul says, we don't grieve as the world grieves without hope. We don't suffer as the world grieves, as the world suffers without hope. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing that the glory will be revealed in us. Paul's writing here, Paul's the first and greatest theologian, but he's a pastoral theologian. All of his his response, really, I would would almost say all of theology is pastoral theology, because knowing about God, his character, and who he is helps us to worship him, it helps us to grow like him. So Paul, and particularly Romans, is a deeply theological work, but it's very practical, it's very pastoral. And so Paul's beginning, and he doesn't mince words, he's beginning by saying, first of all, our present sufferings, they can't even compare to our future glory. So he's like, I just want to set the, the tone right there, and I just want you to consider that thought. And then he's going to develop it, but he's like, here right at the outset, let me tell you, I know what you are going through. And I don't know, none of us has suffered the way Christ suffered on the cross. None of us has suffered the way some people suffer right now for their faith. Suffering is Im- immensely personal, and it's very difficult no matter what we're going through. But Jesus knew suffering, Paul knew suffering, and he's going, let's just keep it in light of our eternal glory, our eternal hope. Let's not forget the overarching perspective, the meta narrative, the big story. Verse 19 For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul's going, look, sin entered the system and the whole thing's falling apart. It's death and decay. Everything is wrong, but it's going to be renewed. It's going to be made new. Jesus in Revelation says, well, behold, I will make all things new, right? I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. And he'll say, behold, I make all things new. Paul's going, look, the current situation, look around you. There's death and destruction, even in creation. Nothing is immune from the effects of sin, and he says, verse twenty-two: We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the fir- who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul saying it's difficult, and we go through it, but we have hope. We can eagerly await that redemption that new eternal life that Christ has promised, that should frame everything we're going through. And then he says this, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. It's sort of what Jesus just said to his disciples. You say you have faith, but do you really? Paul's saying, you say you have hope in Christ, but do you really? When you can't see it or feel it or touch it and it doesn't make sense to you, do you then hope? Saying faith and hope is exactly that. It's believing the promises because of the character of who God is. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then I love in verse 26, and then he says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I was, I've shared before that I, I had a, a pastor in Teen Challenge, and every time I would go to him with any problem, he'd go, have you prayed about it? Every time, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Which I knew was the right answer, but it's annoying to hear when you want advice. So finally, at one point, I, got, I said, you know, they should just put, like, a string on your back. You can just, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Have you you know? And so one, you know, I was going through something else, and I, I really did pray for, like, a week, and so I, I'm like, I can't wait for you to ask you a stupid question. So I went up to him, and I said, you know, Pastor Austin's still struggling, you know, with this, and, you know, you know for a little while now, and he said, well, have you prayed about it? I'm like, as a matter of fact... I have prayed about it. I've been praying about it all week. And I'm like... (laughs) And he's like, well, was it a listening prayer or were you just talking the whole time? Like, wait a minute. (laughs) What's listening prayer? It's like, do you just go in front of God and give him kind of a monologue speech? I'm like, yeah. Listening prayer. When all you can do, you don't have the words, you don't even know what to say, you don't even know, you just... In his presence, broken in his presence, dependent in his presence, like a child, a child is dependent upon, just looking for your father in heaven to meet you, because you don't have words. And Paul's going, the spirit will intercede. God knows what you need, God knows what I need, but we gotta be willing to come to him in humility. I had to write a paper about marks of discipleship, and it all begins with humility, saying, I need you, God, and then remaining teachable. None of us have arrived. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Then, then and only then, after all those things are established, does Paul say, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Really gives us a a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of what Paul is talking about. It's according to his will, not according to our will. Verse 28, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God will continue the good work in you until Christ comes again. It's not about you doing the work. It's about you standing and not running away and not removing yourself from the process. The fruit of the Spirit is made manifest as we surrender and obey. He does it. We just gotta sit still, not run to every, every other thing when every other thing happens, when things don't look like we think they should look. Verse 31, Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's Paul's theodicy. Here's Paul's explanation of evil. Here's 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 what philosophers and theologians wrestle with, is if God is all good, then he wouldn't allow evil. And if he was all powerful, he could get rid of evil. So he's either not all good, or he's not all powerful. And here's Paul's response to that. His God's response to that line of thinking. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul goes, if you want to look at the goodness of God, and if you want to look at how a good God can allow suffering for the greater good, look at the cross. The cross is God's answer to suffering in this world. It's the answer to every prayer we've ever prayed. And it's the answer to God working out a greater good. The worst thing that humanity ever committed, the worst sin is putting Jesus on the cross and he uses it for our redemption. And we believe that and then we think, well, in my situation, I don't know if God's gonna turn this around. Right, because that's much, much, a lot more challenging than raising somebody from the dead and the whole re- redemption of mankind thing. Yeah, God probably can't work in your situation. It's probably a little too tough for him. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If God is the one who justifies, who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died, and more than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. Now, right now, for you and I. And Paul goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul's saying, What? What war, disease, what's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Or have you forgotten? Nothing. Paul says nothing. No. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that phrase. We're not just conquerors, church. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, God will ultimately work all things for the good of those who love him, but more often than not, it does not look like we think it should look, and thank God for that. Remember, as great of a man as he was, Moses never entered the promised land. We will and we do. So it's important to put that verse in context because God loves you. And sometimes bad things happen. And we can feel like he's silent or he doesn't love us or he's not there. And then we just need to be reminded to look at the cross, the ultimate expression of his love. People suffering before Jesus' time just had the Old Testament And we look around right now and we see the war in Ukraine and we ask, how could God allow people to suffer like that? Women and children slaughtered. And throughout history, you can read about in the Bible, that's the same thing, war and famine. And sometimes sin is the result of human evil, of our own choices. And other people's choices affect ours and even practically my sin affects the people I love, right? And then there's some sin that just seems arbitrary, earthquakes or natural evil that affect everybody. And even those who are faithful get caught up in that. And worse, sometimes we look around and the wicked seem, to, wicked seem to be prospering. But justice will come in his time. And sometimes suffering may be allowed to purify or test our faith. It certainly provides opportunity to strengthen our faith. faith. Praise is the antidote to pain. You can quote me on that. Praise is the antidote to pain. Last week we read the shortest verse in the Bible, rejoice always. It doesn't say rejoice when things are good. It says rejoice always. Because you know what? If things are the worst they could ever be and you're still praising God like Job, you're still praising God like the heroes of the faith, like Shadrach, like Daniel, right? Like, like when Daniel writes, look, I'm not gonna bow down and worship your God and my God is gonna save me. He's gonna, he's gonna remove me from this situation. And I love what he says, but you know what? Even if he doesn't, I'm still gonna worship him. That's faith. I know my God can save me. I know my God can remove me from this situation. But even if he doesn't, I'm still gonna serve him and I won't bow down to the idols of the world. There will come a time when God will allow suffering into your life. And when it happens, it's helpful to know that the reason Satan didn't wipe us out long ago is because of God's protection, not because he doesn't love us. So persevere and remember Paul's words to his spiritual son, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, fight the fight, finish the race, keep the faith, God is still protecting you in other ways. And so a lot of the time, we don't know why bad stuff happens. There's a, there's a scripture I want to read, out of Luke 13, and I've never heard this preached. I preached on it once, like probably nine years ago. I've never heard anyone preach on this. And, and I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really address the problem of evil. Besides the obvious cross that addresses the problem of evil, I think this scripture does exactly that. I just think maybe people miss it. And so I want to bring it to our attention. I want to read through it, and then I want to explain it. And as I'm preaching, I rem- I'm rem- remembering something I want to read. So that prayer of the unknown, the Civil War soldier, can you look that up for me on my phone? Because I think that's worth reading. Sorry, this is what happens when you, you know, go in and I'm having conversations with myself up here in the background while I'm talking to you. <laughs> Luke 13:1. Now, there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the others because they suffer this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, Jesus was still surrounded by multitudes of thousands, and sometimes he's teaching the masses, other times he's teaching his disciples, and so it's hard to know who he's talking to at any given time sometimes. But at one point, Jesus is preaching and a delegation comes to him and they bring him this news. Tragic news. Pilate recently slain a group of Galileans as they were worshiping. He mixed their blood with their sacrifices. He's saying, and sadly we have a point of reference nowadays because this has happened, but he's saying, look, these people were in church. The delegation came to Jesus. Jesus is just preaching and teaching. And thank you. And he says, hey, Jesus, what about this? These people in church... And if any place you should be safe, it's in church, right? And they were, they were in church doing church stuff. They were, they were making sacrifices, which is like the ultimate church thing. And they were slaughtered. And so you think Jesus would speak to that, and he does. And we're going to get into that. See, there was a meaning to this message. They conveyed the report to Jesus for a reason, they were the bearers of this bad news and they viewed it differently than Jesus did. See, Jesus had a different perspective and what his response did was it exposed to them their thinking and the error it betrayed. They had already drawn a false conclusion that Galileans must have been worse sinners. And so the false conclusion was based on a falsely pre. Uh, A faulty premise. That one's suffering in life is indicative of one's sin, just as prosperity is proportional to one's piety. We have a friend in Nigeria who watches the service online. And he said in Nigeria, there's such great poverty that there's a lot of prosperity preaching. If God loves you, he's going to make you rich. And so accordingly, they look at people who are rich as people who must be holy or favored by God. And people who are poor or are suffering, it's because of their own sin. It's an exploitive, it's a, it's a horrible, obviously non-biblical theology. And so people have all kinds of false views and Jesus confronts those false views because some people still think that. Like people are suffering and some people will look at him and go, well, yeah, I mean, it's their own fault. Sure. But any, any of us without sin? I mean, maybe we can love on them. Maybe it's an opportunity to help them. See, Jesus rejects both the conclusion and the premise. And he answers and asks the question with a simple no. And he immediately changes the focus. He's saying, look, the opportunity should not be to judge them. When when bad stuff happens, we don't look at it as an opportunity to judge them or God, as to why it happened, we look at it as an opportunity to minister. Instead, it should be perceived as a warning to all sinners, namely themselves and us, of judgment which awaits them. So Jesus turns their attention immediately to another tragedy. It's kind of an interesting thing to do. If you come up with somebody, it's kind of like Jesus. Did you hear about the bad news of those people who were in church and they got killed? And Jesus goes, yeah, I heard that. You want to hear another story? And then he says, you hear about the tower that fell on those 18 men? Seems like, well, why would he do that? And then he repeats the same thing. Repent, or you too will perish. So another tragedy occurred in Jerusalem. Tower of Siloam, 18 men are killed. Tower suddenly collapses and fell on them. And these men were not greater sinners than others. Some point out that the Galileans died at the hand of man, namely Pilate, and the 18 who died in Jerusalem died at the acts of nature, the hand of God. Really the two ways we can categorize evil. And in both instances, Jesus' response is the same. Repent, or you too will perish. First, he's saying, look, you're looking at the wrong thing. First, do, do, do you know why I came? Do you remember the hope I and promise I provide? Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to me, and you'll have eternal life. You'll, you'll overcome the circumstance in this situation, or you too will perish. Jesus is saying it's so easy to focus on everything else that will distract us from our own condition. And he's saying, bad, he's basically saying bad stuff's going to happen. Sometimes it's because of what somebody does, and sometimes it's just random. But you know what? You know what your focus should be? On the eternal, not on the temporal. Repent, or you too will perish. In that, there's a promise, there's a hope, and there's a warning. Remember a few weeks ago, we said, your past isn't going to keep you out of heaven, it's your pride. So Jesus' version is like, okay, I get it, but repent, or you're going to perish. And repent and spread that message to everyone else. See, they compared Galileans with themselves, but Jesus compares Galileans with Galileans in verse 2, and Jerusalemites with Jerusalemites in verse 4. Because here's the thing, we'll, we'll all die. No one here gets out alive. And it doesn't matter if you live 100 years, it goes by pretty quick. Both groups died in a similar way. They died quickly, unexpectedly, tragically. They both died at a place and time where they had felt very safe. There is nowhere the legalistic Jew would have felt closer to God than while sacrificing in the temple. The security was in that. And then the tower, the 18 men who died in Jerusalem, they were standing near a tower. The tower was a significant part of their defense network. The tower would be the place guards were stationed, that they could literally see if there's an attack coming from anywhere. In both cases, it was a place of security. But if our security and our hope is tied to anything other than Jesus can't be in our money or our health or our situation or our circumstance. That which they viewed as their salvation was their destruction. And we can't focus on anything other than Christ for our salvation, our peace, our ultimate destiny, or it will fail. So Jesus changes the focus from the here and now to the eternal. And he challenges and rebukes wrong thinking. It's a remarkable exchange if we lose a spouse or a job or a child or our position, everything that once mattered to us, it will certainly prove, among other things, to be a spiritual test. And whether or not we pass that test test has to do with what we believed, what we were convicted and convinced of before the test. God is good. Really? Are you sure? Do you believe that with all your heart? God loves me. Really? Have you thought through that? I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible says what's true. You believe that because I told you, because your Sunday school teacher told you, because your parents told you. Do you really believe it? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Is that something you die for? Is it a deeply held conviction? If it's something you haven't really thought through, you won't die for it. You probably won't even live for it. There's a Christian movie out called The End of the Spear. And it's a true story of five missionaries who were killed by going to present the gospel to an Indian tribe. You can watch, it was a book, End of the Spear movie. Now you'd think, hey, if God was gonna protect anybody, He's going to protect faithful praying missionaries who leave their relatively comfortable lives, go across the world to preach the gospel to a tribe that's never heard about Jesus. And what did they do with that message? They killed all the men with spears. Spears. Now, I don't know about you, I like to think I'm a pretty faithful guy, but if that was our first missions trip, I think we would have crossed that off the list. I don't think we would have been like, well, that's a place we're gonna visit again. And the wives of these men, certainly they had every, every opportunity to doubt God, to, 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 to grieve and, and to be angry, And to question, but these were faithful women of God. These were praying, faithful women of God. And these were women who knew the answers, who knew what they were convicted of before the test, that God was good, that he can be trusted. And so they decided to go back to the same jungle to try to convert the same men who had killed their husbands. And it's remarkable, we can say, they were remarkable people, but we'll miss something there. Their faith was remarkable because the object of their faith was remarkable. They were remarkable people because they worshiped a remarkable God and they actually believed. They believed and lived out their faith even when it didn't make sense. They later went to that jungle and they won the very men who spared their husbands to death to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the martyrs, Jim Elliot, said something that is now famous. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to get what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives his life away because he can't keep it anyway. Jesus says, "If, if you live your life in such a way that it's all about you, that it's all only about your own existence and your own accumulation and your own self-centeredness and your own kingdom. You will have lived your whole life and you will have lost what it means. You will have never lived. But if you die for me, and that doesn't just mean physically, it could mean that, but more often than not, it means daily, multiple times a day. If you're willing to die to self, Jesus is saying, you'll know what it means to really live. I'm going to read this as the worship team comes up. And I read this a long time ago, and, and I was thinking of it while I was preaching to you. It says, the prayer of an unknown Confederate soldier. It says, I asked for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might humbly learn to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things and I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy and I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men and I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life and I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. And despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. And I stand among all men most richly blessed.